The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Ecclesia on the west side, will you pause for a moment and pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this unique hour. We thank you for the brothers and sisters that have gathered together this morning with us. We thank you for a community and a space where we can be honest, both with you and those around us, about the place that we find ourselves. Often, for many of us, it's a place of struggle, sometimes a place of confusion, sometimes a place that we need clarity or focus. But God, what we know is that each of us come to this place in need of you. We need to hear from you. We need your guidance, that our life is better when we are following your plan rather than our plan. And so we ask, God, that out of the stories of Scripture, from the story of Nehemiah today, that you'd teach us, you'd instruct us, you'd call our hearts back to you. We pray all of this together, and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Ecclesia on the west side, 11 a.m. It's a joy to be able to say that for the first time. We are in a bit of a new rhythm together uh, as a church. We are uh, trying to make space for the brothers and sisters that we want to be able to bring uh, from our family and community, and, uh, and, and we needed parking space as well and kid space. And so going from a 10 a.m. Uh, not only allows us to do that uh, in, uh, in many uh, better ways in the number of people that we can bring in with a 9 and 11, it also lets me create a much more manageable schedule. So I get to be with you and only with you this weekend. And uh, so last night on a Saturday night, I've been used to preaching Saturday nights for more than a decade, and I went to a movie. It was awesome. <laughs> and uh, I'm really liking Ecclesia on the West Side a lot. Um, <laughs> And I, and I love, as many of you know, I live on the west side, and, uh, and so many of my friends are here in this room or at the 9 a.m. service, and the opportunity that we have to use these facilities is part of what you're going to hear about, actually, in the Scripture today, uh, that God's blessed us with, to be able to use them for maximum impact is a beautiful, beautiful gift. So I'm curious as we start, i got a question for you. If you would think back on your lifetime, and maybe if you're young, you're, you're a student, um, the most significant project that you had ever taken on in your career, your lifetime, your studies, um, what did it feel like in the days or weeks or months after you completed that project? What did you wanna do? What did you do? How did you look at life differently? Um, for me, um, it, it was a strange turn of events, the most significant, pro I've started two churches, those were big projects, but they're never over, right? They just, they keep going. Um, but uh, in my 30s, I had uh, presented a number of times to uh, publishers that I met, met with um, a philosophy of Bible translation that I was positive one of them needed to pursue. In my years of study at Baylor, um, one of the things that became, became really clear as you're studying Greek and Hebrew in the original language is that the Bible's a library, not a book. Everybody, anybody thought about it that way? Maybe you've heard me talk about that. It's, it's a library, it's not a book. In fact, it's really diverse. Um, it's got really um, ancient Eastern literature and poetry that reads really different than these very casual letters from Paul and really differently than each of the gospel accounts. In fact, in the original Greek, you realize each one of these gospel accounts have a radically different style in their writing. 
But when we translate, uh, typically to English, um, it's often translated like it's one book, so you end up with one kind of literary style. So for years, I would tell people after this epiphany while I was studying the original language, I would tell Bible publishers, you need to do a Bible publishing project this way, and they would kind of smile at me. And eventually, as I was meeting with a, a group of publishers about what book I would write next, um, and I told them how they should translate the Bible, and they ought to think about it, and it'd be really beautiful. And they said, well, why don't you do it if you keep talking about it so much? And, uh, and I was in my 30s, and they were proposing that I would take on a translation of the entire Bible. And uh, when you're in your 30s, you're just uh, stupid enough to think you can do something like that. And uh, so I accepted a contract from Thomas Nelson Publishers um, to lead a project with ultimately... Um, what I thought was a totally adequate budget, which of course was not a totally ad adequate budget, um, and spent about 10 years of my life waking up every morning um, to uh, a, at least one or maybe 20 documents in my inbox that were uh, the back and forth between multiple uh, translators and scholars and writers, and we had to all settle in on what this final translation would look like. Um, when that 10 years was over, um, and I literally closed my box for the last time and the Bible went to print. Um, I thought, I want to watch, I want to go like see 30 movies in 30 days or something. Like I had, you know, ambition to be so lethargic that it would just be beautiful because I thought this time I need to fill. Um, but often, and that's usually our response, right? If you've worked hard, you've done a big project, we see this in the story of Nehemiah. Uh, in 52 days... God's people came together and they built a wall that seemed impossible. And when the wall was completed, it literally changed some things in their life. It changed the economy. The economy was much better. Um, what happened was, used to, vandals could come in and just burn your crops or take what they wanted. Uh, women that were traveling to get water or uh, to sell their goods were in danger from gangs that would roam. But all of a sudden, there was a completed wall around Jerusalem. People were safe. The economy was thriving. And you would think, right, this is the time you would respond to God and life would get really good. And yet what we often know is that when um, life gets really good, life gets comfortable or easy, it's often just the opposite. We let our guard down, right? For me, now, I'm grateful technology has helped me with this uh, because maybe you're like, uh, you're like me. I tend to be forgetful about what day is what and what's happening, and that's especially difficult uh, when you have a spouse like mine that loves to play tricks on you on April Fool's Day. Um, it sneaks up on me every year. And, uh, and now I literally set an annual reminder on my phone. Your wife will try to trick you today do not fall for it, right? I wake up in the morning and go, oh, good, it's April Fool's Day. I don't, and now she can't get me any longer because the iPhone's been invented. Uh, but because I often have my guard down, right, there were really difficult April Fool's days, like the one that she emailed me a photo. This is just in the early days of starting Ecclesia. Um, we were, uh, if you, you know the story, we had moved to Houston to start the church. We moved into an apartment. Um, and then just as the church was just a few months old, our apartment caught fire. Um, and on the same day that our apartment caught fire, Lisa sent me to the store uh, with a grocery list. And as it would, you'd expect for a Texan, if your apartment burns, the first few things you should get would be a knife, an avocado, and lime, because guacamole will cure all things. Um, and then down the list were some personal items and then a pregnancy test. And we learned that we were having our next kid right in the midst of starting a church. We'd lost all our possessions. It was a bad week. 
And uh, a few weeks later, as I'm speaking at Baylor, uh, Lisa sent an email of the sonogram that she got, and it had twins on the sonogram. Um, <laughs> it was April Fool's Day. Uh, that's why I have an alarm now, so that I don't, those things don't happen to me. Um, maybe you're like that on April Fool's Day. You forget to get your guard up, right? And anybody can get you. Um, it's easy. What, what happens for most of us when life gets easy is that our guard goes down and, and our reliance on God gets kind of thrown out the window. We kind of start to figure out, like, I think I got this down, right? I think I can do this. G.K. Chesterton um, says this about worship. He says, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. That's what happens. We start to worship our kids. How they're doing becomes our life, right? We start to worship things, right? It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Even uh, atheist novelists, David Foster Wallace, anybody familiar with David Foster Wallace? Um, not the person you would think would come up in a sermon. Sean pulled this quote up for us this week, and it's, um, it fits really well what Chesterton was saying. David Foster Wallace is a pronounced atheist, uh, wrote one of the novels that's considered to be one of the great American novels that not many people can read because it's so dense and difficult. Um, but speaking at a commencement ceremony, he said this about worship. Sounds a bit like Chesterton. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Right? Bob Dylan said this. You can find it almost anywhere, right? We, most of us know it. You're going to worship something. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over those to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. And you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's one of those quotes that just, if you're like me, and you've worshipped any of those things, and I would guess all of us have, it hits home, right? We begin to realize, what, what's most important to me? The story that we're in in Nehemiah is our story. It's a story of God stepping in and doing something really significant, something beautiful, something miraculous. And then it's a story of people doing what people do. Thanks, God. I got this from now on. I'll take it from here. And we can start to predict how it goes. This is what we see in the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13, it picks up with normal life, economy thriving, people doing well, which means worship. And the mandates of God start to take second place, third place, fourth place. Nehemiah 13 tells us, later that day, 
When the book of Moses was being read to the people, we discovered a passage that said, no Ammonite or Moabite will be allowed to enter the sacred gatherings of God's people. Anybody read these passages in Deuteronomy or different places before? And God, God was very clear about who would enter into the place of worship and uh, some things that don't always resonate with our culture today. In fact, if you don't read the Bible carefully, you'll misunderstand most of this. He goes on and says, this prohibition went back to the time when our ancestors wandered in the desert, when the Ammonites and the Moabites refused to welcome the Israelites with food and drink, right? So in some ways you'd read this and just think, well, they're still mad about that whole thing with the food and drink thing, so they're just gonna exclude them because of it. That's what it sounds like when you read it. In fact, they hired Balaam to curse them, but it didn't work. God turned, as God often did, that curse into a blessing. Balaam came to curse them, and literally what came out of his mouth was, was blessings. God ultimately blessed his people through Balaam. As soon as people heard what God's law said, they excluded anyone with any non-Israelite descendant from Israel. Now, this is what was happening, and we, we hear this in the text, that this was one of those mandates that uh, that God's people decided to ignore. And some of us hear it and we say, well, you know what, that's the reason I stopped going to church or a lot of people I know stopped going to church is because it sounds racist and exclusionary, right? They're just gonna exclude people. Like what's the big deal with excluding people? Why are we always excluding people? And if you just read it in today's culture, you'd say, well, that seems to make some sense. What, what we're not hearing in the story below the story is what was really happening in that day. So racial lines were also uh, religious lines in these days. So this would be about accepting a people that worshiped foreign gods. Now, for some of us, we think, well, you know, there, we ought to have diversity there. Well, in that particular day, most of those foreign religions would practice things like child sacrifice, right? So just imagine, right, in, uh, in our culture today, if we were trying to be uh, totally politically correct and fully accepting, uh, you can picture yourself as a wedding approaches. When I was younger, I used to officiate a lot more weddings than I do because we have Saturday night service now. I love to officiate weddings because I get the best seat in the house, right? You get to stand with the bride and the groom. And it stokes your love for your bride. It does so much for you. But in the early days of doing weddings, I identified very much with the groom. Now. I identify with the poor, wretched soul that walks the beautiful woman down the aisle, right? It's, it's that poor guy that's literally like going broke as he gives away <laughs> this person he loves most. And I, so when you see me weeping at a wedding, you may not understand why I'm actually weeping. It's because I can see the fear in this man's eyes. And uh, imagine, that's a difficult day, right, for a dad. Imagine now being grandparents and you're doing a wedding knowing that your son or daughter is marrying into a religion, that you're basically um, accepting the fact that some of your grandchildren will be sacrificed on a pagan altar, right? Most of us could go, you know, I could accept some new practices or new things, but I'm drawing the line at child sacrifice, right? That would be the place that I'd go, no, we're not really, that we're not going there. So when you see in this passage that Nehemiah's fired up about this reality and that God's fired up about this reality, this is not some racist text. It's not meant to be dropped uh, into our culture today uh, that is radically different. This is a text where God's saying, I'm pretty passionate about the way I've called you to worship, and these pagan practices are dangerous and they're destructive. And it was ultimately part of the undoing of Solomon that he married people of these different 
religions that came in and had these pagan practices that were so unbelievably destructive. So as you read the text, know that when they started to do this kind of, uh, abandon these kind of truths from Scripture, this was a big deal. In fact, Nehemiah, it says in this passage, he goes and finds some of the guys who'd been marrying people outside the faith, and uh, we don't quite know what to do with passages like this. Nehemiah went to confront them. They didn't listen, so Nehemiah beat them up. Um, it's in the Bible, read it. He just, he beat them up and then he pulled their hair out. That's what he did. So if you think sometimes, like I think our church is really harsh or something, I, don't, I haven't beat anybody up in the church. There's nobody that I came and said, hey, listen, I don't like you. I heard your, your wife called me, said you drank too much. I'm gonna beat you up now. It doesn't happen, right? So there's a lot of grace around here. You can really appreciate it. That's, that's the way it went down and that's why it was such a big deal. But beyond that, um, we're gonna hear in chapter 13 the things that were really um, dangerous for God's people. So in chapter 13, verse four, we start to see this story, and this is what it's telling us ultimately, that when God did something beautiful for most of his people, they started to believe that God's best was behind them. They, They started to think, well, God did some awesome stuff before, but now we're just back to regular life, right? And, uh, Nehemiah 13, verse four, this is what it tells us. That before that happened, the priest named Elishab took a large storeroom of the temple of God. Now this is the priest in charge of worship. Worship would be his priority, right? He took the storeroom in the temple of God and gave it to Tobiah. Anybody remember Tobiah from earlier in the story? He was doing what? Speaking against Nehemiah, I just love to know that somebody was listening to this sermon a few weeks ago. It makes my heart feel good. (laughs) Tobiah was with this guy, Samballot, right? And they were coming after Nehemiah. They were making fun of the wall. They were attacking them. So we got two things going on here. We got a storeroom in the temple, and then we got Tobiah. It says Elishab was in charge of the storeroom and Tobiah was a relative of his. Before he gave it to Tobiah, it had been used to store many different things for use in the temple, the grain offerings, the incense, the vessels, and the tithes of the new grain, the new wine, the olive oil for the Levites, the priests. When people would bring their tithes in, it wasn't quite a currency system like we have. We just pass a basket and then we buy the things that the church needs for worship, right? They would bring in the things that the priests needed for worship, grain and wine and wheat and all the rest. All of it came in and was stored in this room. If, if, if uh, Eliashab has decided to rent out this room like it's an Airbnb, right? He's just decided, like, I'm gonna post it online, see who wants to rent it. Oh, one of our enemies wants to rent it. That's okay, he'll pay. What does it tell us about the worship life of the people of God in Jerusalem. There was none. There was, the tithes weren't coming in. The worship wasn't happening. So much so that the room you'd normally store the offerings in, the vault that you would use to put the offerings in, we don't really need this room because nobody's bringing in any offerings. Worship's not really happening. We could rent it out. It tells you a little bit about the worship commitment happening for these people that God had just done something amazing for. So he says all these things, the grain offerings, the incense, the vessels, the tithes, the grain, the new wine, the olive for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers. Also, the offerings for the priests, 
It goes on in detail here to tell us what happened to the priests. The priests stopped coming to the temple because nobody brought in their offerings, and the priests said, well, if I'm going to feed my family, I've got to go back to the field. So all the priests, all the singers, all the people that led in worship, they left the temple, and they went back to their farms. They started to work, and the place of worship became a desolate place, so much so that they thought, you don't want to waste real estate, let's rent it out to Tobiah. So all this is happening while Nehemiah's away, by the way. So um, this is what we're going to find. Nehemiah says, I was not in Jerusalem when Eliashab did this. It was the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and I had returned to make a report to him. He went back to King Artaxerxes, and they got permission to come back to Jerusalem. When I arrived, I learned about the evil thing that Eliashab had done by giving Tobiah a room in the courts of the temple of the true God, a place he wasn't even allowed to enter because of his heritage. Right? This was not even a place he was supposed to be present, much less running a business out of. And Nehemiah says, I was livid. And in my anger, I threw all of Tobiah's property out of the room. This would be one of those moments you just wish you had like a video going back to see Nehemiah just like an angry wife throwing all the things out of the house, right? Just, your stuff is gone. And then he had them purify the rooms and restore what was supposed to be there, the sacred vessels, the grain offerings, and the incense. Now what's happening here, Ecclesia? We got a group of people that saw God do an amazing thing and then just decided, I think we can take it from here, God. I think we got this. I think we can do it. And what did they do? They stopped worshiping. And what happens when you stop worshiping? G.K. Chesterton told us, you'll worship. You'll just worship anything and everything else other than the one true God. It goes on in verse 15 and explains to us that part of the problem was that the people of God also began to divide. This is a problem in our day as well their religious life from their real life. Maybe you've felt this before. It feels like I got my business life, I got my home life, I got my spiritual life. Or you'll even have people come up and ask you like, how's your spiritual walk, right? And the truth is like, you got one life. You don't have a spiritual life and a business life and a home life. You got one life. It's all one life, and God belongs in all of them, right? That compartmentalization is part of what allows us sometimes to say, I'm going to keep God out of this part of my life. But the reality is, like, God wants to be fully present in your business, in your home. Your worship is to center in all of these places. So what we see in Nehemiah 13, 15 is that the people were in that place, And they had started to make their real life and their spiritual life a different thing. And it tells us in verse 15 that at at that same time, I looked around Judah. He said, not only did the temple, it was no longer this place of worship, there was no worship happening in the temple and what was happening outside the temple? I looked around Judah and saw men working the wine presses on the Sabbath. Now, for us, that may not be a big deal, but in Jewish culture, when God's given a clear command, this is a Sabbath day and we're gonna keep it holy, this was a big deal. God had said, you got six days for commerce. You got six days. Kill it for six days. Do a great job for six days. Give me one day. I want my one day. And the Ten Commandments, God reminded, I'm a jealous God, and I want to be your God. I don't want to just be a a memento. I don't want to just be an idea. I want to be your God. And that meant for the Jewish people, and should mean for us, 
that we have a Sabbath day, a day to rest, a day to worship, a day that's set aside that's different than other days. Now, for most of us, with cell phones and real life, and again, this is the, the worst uh, passage or lesson for pastors to preach, because what do we do on the Sabbath? We work on the Sabbath, right? So it's really hard for us to figure out how to talk to you about it. But what we know is that the Bible is true, that this mandate to have a day to rest and worship makes everything else we do better, that it centers us, that it gives us rest, it gives us purpose, it helps us stay connected to the Creator. So Nehemiah sees people, they're working the wine presses. Others he found bringing large loads of grain to be loaded on donkeys, wine, grapes, figs. They brought every kind of load into Jerusalem on the Sabbath, no matter the season. And I warned them about selling food on the Sabbath just as they were doing it. There were men from Tyre who came in. uh, They were living in Jerusalem, and they also brought fish and all kinds of merchandise into Jerusalem. And they sold it to the people of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Now, remember, just a few chapters before, Nehemiah had been teaching the people about why the walls had been decimated in the first place, right? That the reason that, uh, that they had lost Jerusalem, the reason that the people had been living in exile was because they had forgotten God. They'd forgotten them, and they just moved on. And God did this amazing work, and they had this time of worship and prayer. And you can imagine they were like many of us to go, we're not going to forget God. Like, God just did this amazing work. And what happens right after that? They forget God. They forget God, just like we're prone to do. And Nehemiah said, I confronted the leaders of Judah, whom I held responsible for the public's actions. He said, even the leaders weren't keeping the Sabbath. And then he turns and he asks them this question. He says, why are you doing what you know is wicked? Now, for most of us, we'd go, is it wicked? Is that kind of overstating it? What is it? But it begins, right, in just these small increments. Ecclesia, this is part of what I think we're called to hear today, is the reality is that most of us don't wake up one day and choose a wicked path. We wake up one day, and we just forget God. And the next day, we forget God. And before you know it, we've gone a month. And we haven't, we haven't really lived a life of worship. And God gets moved into the background, and we are moved into the foreground. And the story never goes well in that place. And so the story of Scripture, over and over and over, is God's people being reminded, don't forget me. Worship me. And then Nehemiah prays this beautiful prayer at the end of, end of chapter 13. It's a prayer that we could all pray, you know, literally this could be our life prayer. He says, oh God, oh God, remember me with favor. And Nehemiah constantly was calling God's people back to him. So I wanted to share just a few things about worship that I wanted us to contemplate and say, what, God, what do you have to say to me in this passage? And then as we close and, and move towards communion, to pray about some of the walls that God's helping us to build. First, I wanna remind you that worship is not what we do in this room. Although we do it well in this room, we have um, great musicians and beautiful songs. If you're like me, um, this song, God's Highway, that we sang today, like this is a song I need to sing in my heart and my mind all week long. I just need to run. My feet are strong, my eyes are clear. I cannot see the way from here. Anybody felt like that recently? I don't know where to go from here. But on we go, he knows the way, and in his arms he keeps me safe. 
fear not. Right? This is, this is the heart of what I need to be reminded. And when I live into this place of trust in God, so these songs and prayers help me to do that, but it's not the only way that we do that. First, that worship is a way of life. It's not just what we do in this room. My prayer, and this is part of why we see it in, in chapter 13, Nehemiah is clear to point out worship wasn't happening in the temple and it wasn't happening in people's lives, right? So not only did it fail in the temple, people were also in their life, they, they weren't devoting themselves to worship, it was both. And so what we wanna do are be a people that establish some rhythms. It's one of the reasons we've said, one of the rhythms of an ecclesian is that we wanna be a people that read the Bible daily. So I don't know what you're doing daily, but the things that you do every day will declare what's really important to you. Now you don't have to sit down and read three chapters a day, but if you'll read a little bit of Bible every day, if you'll take some time to pray and to center your life and to acknowledge, I answer to God today. I'm here to serve God today. God is the primary for me. We have that time of worship. It will reorient how we live. Secondly, worship is the most evangelistic thing that we do. When we worship God, it calls other people into a relationship with God. It, I, I believe, Ecclesia, that one of the uh, downfalls of the church in the West is we become a people that no longer worship with passion and beauty, and the faith that we live has just no longer been uh, contagious. People don't look at it and say, that's what I want. And when we worship well and we declare that God is the center of our life and we live in a way that's different than others, people are naturally drawn to it. In the early years of Ecclesia, we did our first um, kind of uh, worship and arts uh, festival. We had a Saturday down on Taft Street that we, um, we had great artists telling the stories of God and it was one of the crazy early day Ecclesia moments where we had, uh, we had live musicians, we had live painters, we even had a guy who was a, uh, uh, a tattoo artist who did tattoos in Hebrew. So you can imagine, like he's over in the corner giving tattoos and uh, we're in Montrose, right, and people are coming in and you could hear worship and you could hear bzzz, the drill of the tattoo thing going and it was just this crazy beautiful place, right? And, uh, and Lisa and I had this uh, unique neighbor. You could just describe her as being this person that was so far from God, right? And a part of my world uh, in Houston feels like I'm constantly uh, intersecting these people that I know was hanging out with that were so far from God and then people that I've known a long time that are like uh, this particular person. I had two people in front of me at this event. Uh, one was my uh, grandfather's dearest friend, Pastor Stone. He was a long-time, old-school Baptist pastor. Um, and then our neighbor, who was, like, not the person you would ever see in a church. And uh, she showed up not knowing what I did for a living. And so um, she was talking to me when my friend, uh, my grandfather's friend, Pastor Stone, came up behind her. And she was asking me, what is it that you do? And I told her, I'm a pastor. And her response to me was, no effing way you're a pastor, right? <laughs> Brother Stone is already like, there's a tattoo guy over here, and this lady doesn't talk like a church girl, and what in the world is going on, right? And uh, one of the great parts of being a pastor is that people often ask you, why are you a pastor? I said, that's a great question, right? I begin to just tell them, because I've been captured by the love of Jesus, and I want to orient my life around worshiping Jesus. As I started to tell her why I love Jesus, 
That's a beautiful sound. I like having some babies in the room on the west side. As I started to tell her about why I love Jesus, right? Every time I would tell her who Jesus is and what he did, she'd, she'd never heard the story, never heard the story of who Jesus is and what he'd done. And she just kept saying, no effing way. That's what he did. He went to the cross. <laughs> Pastor Stone is like, I don't know what's happening over here, right? And, uh, and by the end of it, right, a seed was planted in a way that was beautiful and true and good. I, Things are going to look different on the west side than they did in Montrose. Um, but the reality is, like, we want to be a people that are worshiping and telling the story of God. And I believe there are people, they may not use the same language when they respond, but they'll be equally stunned when they're in the presence of worshiping people who truly love God and have experienced God's love. And Ecclesia, that's the kind of church we want to be. Thirdly, worship is authentic. This is the thing. We often come and we've got these same songs we sing, and you feel like worship needs to be happy. Just read the Psalms, right? These guys are often ticked off at God, right? They come in and they're like, I'm angry. You didn't do what you said you were going to do, and I don't feel good about it, right? And I got something to say to you. And worship Worship meets us in the place that you are. One of uh, our Ecclesians was just telling me about a dear friend um, that lost a 10-month-old baby, right? In the midst of that kind of loss, right, nobody comes in smiling. You don't smile for a long time. But you know what? God meets us in that place of pain and sorrow, and it's a gift, and that's what real worship looks like. And lastly, worship is holistic, Worship is a part of all of life. We worship as we walk the dog. We worship as we drive to work. I know it's hard to imagine worshiping in Houston traffic, but you gotta find a way to do it, right? It's either gonna be a time that's occupied by the evil one or, or the one who made you. It's gonna suck you in or it's gonna give you life. And we gotta figure out a way to remind ourselves that all of life is worship. When you cook, it's worship. When you eat, it's worship. When you sleep, it's worship. You're not just shutting down your body. You're doing what God asks you to do to care well for yourself. And it ought to begin and end with, it doesn't have to be a formal prayer, but it's a sense of, God gave me this time to rest, and I'm going to rest. And I'm going to use my body and the new energy I'm going to receive to serve the Lord well. Ecclesia on the west side, this is, um, there are a number of places in Scripture that are difficult for us for our crowd particularly. Jesus said some things that were really hard, I think, for us to read on the west side of Houston. He said things like, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? And at that point, it's hard for anybody to imagine a region like ours that has the wealth that it has. You hear those passages and you just think like, well, what's Jesus trying? Either you wanna argue with Jesus, right, which is a bad idea, Jesus will win, or you go, what's Jesus saying to me? Right? And I think ultimately Jesus is saying, if you get really comfortable and you think you can do it, you'll leave me, you'll forget me. And we need to be a people that don't just come to Jesus when the hurricane hits. You'll notice, right? we had a lot of people coming to church in those weeks after the hurricane. Right? After 9-11, Everybody needed God after 9-11. Then a few weeks later, a lot of people went, I think I got it now. I got through the worst of it. I'll be okay. And ultimately, I think that's what Jesus was reminding us. If you think you can do it, you're fooling yourself. 
Trust me. Follow me. And together, the story of Nehemiah reminds us God can do something amazing, and we too quickly forget. God's done some, some amazing things in our midst and has more amazing things to do. So I want to be a part of a community where people are ready. Yeah, we built that wall. Now let's move to the next wall and the next one and the next one. And we, at our church, we got camps to build. We got people to care for. We got people all across the globe that are counting on us. We got people in this city that need their homes rebuilt and they're counting on us. And we're not renting this thing out like an Airbnb, right? It's Hotel Jesus. It's where we're gonna host people that are gonna serve the city, right? It's just the opposite. We're gonna use every corner of this building and campus and everything that God gives us physical, spiritual, and human resources. And we're gonna say, God, these are yours. Will you help us to be a part of doing something really remarkable? And will you help keep us on our knees, coming to you and trusting in you? So as we come to communion today, will you ask God to keep you uncomfortable? And will you pledge again to say, God, even though I can have a tendency to wanna think I can do it on my own, will you woo me, call me out, will you, orient my life around worship so that I keep that connection with you and trust in you. Will you give me a moment to pray for you and then we're gonna celebrate communion together. Lord God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Lord, I thank you for the fact that we can come here and be honest that we're a lot like the people in Nehemiah's day. We're a lot like the people that, that saw something, God do something amazing but then started to figure out like maybe we can do this, maybe we have this, maybe we can be okay. And Lord, we're grateful that you call us together into community, that together we learn how to rely on you. Lord, we know that raising kids is something we can't do our own. Raising grandkids is not something we can do on our own. Lord, we know uh, that the work that you've called us to, when we orient our vocation life around you, our family life around you, uh, Lord, that we need you in every part of our heart and our journey. And so we ask today, God, that you would bless us richly as we walk this path with you. We thank you today for this bread. We believe that it's a physical reminder that in the story of Nehemiah, even as you drew close in times of despair, Lord, that you came ultimately through Christ so that you could be present with us always, that your spirit would live within us. Never leave us, never forsake us. We thank you today for this cup, for this wine and juice that says to each of us that we're a forgiven people and if you've forgiven us, then surely we must forgive others. And so we ask today, God, that as we come to this table, that we would center our hearts and our lives around you. We pray all of this together and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.